2: Welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Marixa Lasso. She's the author of Erased, the untold story of the Panama Canal, published this year by Harvard University Press. This book takes us on a tour of the Panama Canal zone through the stories of the towns that were destroyed or moved as the canal was constructed. It challenges most narratives about that place by arguing that the zone was not built out of empty jungle. Rather, it was a region that had been at the center of trade networks for hundreds of years, and canal officials and the U.S. government reimagined it as a jungle so that the canal would appear to be its entrance into modernity. Everything you thought you knew is wrong. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, Marixa. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Alejandra. Thank you for the interview. Um, So the book... Uncovers a history that, really, once you know it, it seems so obvious and so hard to believe that we hadn't heard it before. Uh, and so, I, I thought that was really fascinating aspect of it. I wanted, <clears throat> excuse me, I wanted to start with the title, "Erased," because it's really about a double kind of erasure, uh, material. Erasure, but also a kind of discursive erasure. And so, can you can you talk a little bit about about the title and and really about the broad argument of the book before we get into the details?
0: Yes, and you're absolutely right. The title is about that double erasure: the landscape that gets erased, um, the, the old Panamanian urban landscape of the trans, that crossed the that connected the ocean, the Pacific and Atlantic Ocean, that's erased. But what I'm arguing in the book is that In addition to a landscape that is erased, a whole history is erased, and a whole understanding of both Panamanian and Latin American history is erased. And as historians of space and landscapes know, landscapes reflect our worldview. And my argument in the book is that that erasure of Panamanian building of this uh, route coincided with a historical erasure of Latin American building or construction of its own history.
2: So at what point did you realize that you had a book? How did you come to this topic in the first place?
0: By accident. (laughs) (laughs) Like the best things in life. (laughs) I was at the National Archives. I had a different project. I was working, I wanted to do an urban history of Cologne City, the Atlantic port of Panama. And I I wanted to look at the the American side of that city. There was an American and a Panamanian side. So looking at the the National Archives records, um, um, I, I found this record about Town Sites Committee. And then a whole world emerged. That surprised me, and I realized and, and I mean I'm, I, I grew up in Panama, and I had never heard about it. And the richness of that story surprised me, and I said, "I, I need to understand this, I need to work on this." And I abandoned the other project and went into this. And it, was a, and it became something that was one surprise after the other. For example, something else that I didn't know because the story that I have heard was that, you know, the towns that were there were flooded. It was my surprise as realizing they were not. So it was one surprise after the other.
2: Yeah, and that um, that final chapter about the your argument about what actually happened in the flooding, I'm going to talk about that, that sort of towards the end. But first, let's just start at the beginning. And one of the things that you argue really is that, Initially, it wasn't the it wasn't the material, but it was actually the discursive erasure that happens first. so this region that's been at the heart of exchanges and circulations that define modernity, right are narrated as backwards, backwaters, primitive, outside of circulation, right. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that process:
0: Yes, and because I, I really I became convinced in this in this during this project that we treat people. Um, and how we treat people depends on how we understand them, and how we d- understand them depends on how we understand their history. That was very clear in the case of Panama. You no know? this is a region of Colombia, and in the nineteenth century, what did that mean when Americans come to Panama in nineteen o four to build the canal that this country, this region was at the forefront of republicanism you no know? in the nineteenth century when most places in the world with monarchies, this was a republic, but not only that, it was a black republic in the tropics, no? and where there were black mayors, black citizens voting, participating in politics um, next to a major railroad, a major communication hub. But with the ideas about the tropics in the 19th century, could not acknowledge or accept that black Republicans could be at the forefront of any kind of innovation. So there was at first this discursive erasure of their protagonism in the history of this communication hub that is Panama. And once you disconnect them from that history, it becomes easier to depopulate the region, to expel them from the region
2: yeah and before the depopulation, there's this very fascinating process that you trace really three different periods, a slow transition towards u s dominance or hegemony or whatever you want to call it and I found that really fascinating to think about this this kind of the way that sovereignty is not either you know one way or the other, but it really is a process and this and this there's these kind of things that get taken away slowly. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? And then I want to also ask you about this disfranchisement, which was really very striking.
0: Yes. I mean, uh, one of, another surprise is that um, Panamanians have studied very carefully how the canal zone and the canal went back to Panama, No, how Panamanians recovered control over the route over the canal. But we never really understood or studied how it happened the other way around. I mean, how the U.S. Um, appropriated its territory that was fully occupied, as it was easy and it was not easy and it was not simple because it was the most densely populated part of the country, full of towns and municipalities. So it was a very slow process. Um, it was not like the U.S. came with a clear idea of what it was going to do there. And you can see that it's a slow process that the first thing is to rule the region, which makes sense if you think that it's a a densely populated region, no? And then their negotiation over what exactly does it mean, the Panama Canal Treaty of 1903? How is it going to be enforced? And and it's it's not, nothing was predetermined. And there's a lot of interpretation that happens slowly.
2: So the first, so you talk about three different Periods, right? Yes. Um, one is when they are trying to share power, I guess, or maintaining Panamanian sovereignty.
0: Well, not really. What are they doing? <laughs> the first, the first period is not maintaining Panamanian sovereignty, but governing Panamanians like they were doing in Puerto Rico.
2: And then the second.
0: And the a se- move. Uh uh-huh. Go but, ahead. Yes. So the first. Is the U.S. is governing this region like they govern Puerto Rico, let's say? So they are acknowledging local politics, local uh, mayors. No, it's not yet a company town. It's just a region that has changed from one government to another, but keeping all the structures that both Colombian and Americans understood as a way to govern towns, which which is the you know municipal governments. Um, but then that became complicated and this the second moment is when the municipalities are eliminated and replaced with administrative districts you no know? so it's now the company the panama canal uh the the icc the Ismian canal commission that is governing not anymore the municipal governments but company government. That's the second moment. And to me, that moment is crucial because once you disconnect the towns that are there from their previous municipal history and their previous urban history, uh, it becomes easier to imagine it without towns and without people. And the third moment is when um, the East Canal Commission decides to depopulate and has a huge debate about that and decides we're going to depopulate the zone, and make the size to expel, to eliminate all the Panamanian towns or whatever.
2: So there's two things that I wanted to ha- uh, talk about that happened in between the second and the third, or I guess during that period. One is this question of disfranchisement, right? This mm-hmm. tradition of voting and and participatory um, uh, democratic traditions gets eliminated. Um, so, can you tell us when when did that happen, and how what was that process? Uh,
0: well, that happened in uh, so the first thing they come in 1904. You know, it, it makes sense. It's like, well, we find here all this town. There are majors, there are people, and there's a long tradition of municipal government. And the first one of the first laws are the municipal regulations that creates the Eastman Canal Commission, and they leave them there. But something special happens because since this is a U.S. territory but it's in Panama and Panamanians live there in these municipalities to vote they have to leave their towns and go outside of the canals borders to vote in, in, in Panama City or Colon City so it's a funny they are citizens of Panama living in U.S. territory under municipal governments that are American but uh, so it's a strange combination no? that yeah. is happening there. Um, but still, um, there's still a recognition that they have the right to be governed by municipalities and by majors. And one thing that I found fascinating is how when us majors begin to replace panamanian majors they begin to defend their their citizens <laughs> not even against the the East canal commission they take seriously their jobs and maybe that's why they are eliminated
2: <laughs> so the the next stage is a really fascinating one and um this is when the us decides that it's going to modernize and make these towns like more 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 modern as opposed to what they conceived of as less modern in the, in the towns that already existed, right? And there are, there are a series of processes that you've described um, in a really interesting way. And I loved the section about screens, um, maybe because it reminded me of Luis Perez's description of the importance of screens in, on becoming Cuban. And so I wonder if you can tell, talk about screens and why they mattered, what was their significance in that, in that moment, in that process?
0: Well, yes, because the screens are, are a symbol of so many things, no? I, I, at least that's how I read it. Because first, they're new. They're, they're new technology. Uh, so you, you see these government officials and, and, and builders figuring out how to actually use them. But also, and this is perhaps very important, is that we see here, how do we justify controlling this territory? And the justification is health. Now we're bringing health. Um, and one of the arguments is that, well, when, when the Spanish arrived, they justified everything with religion. No, we're bringing their true religion. And now it is the justification is we're bringing sanitation and paving and, and, and modern cities. And so screens have a very important part because Panama was this place of yellow fever and malaria. So protecting against mosquitoes was crucial. But at the same time, it was expensive to screen everybody. So who gets to be screened? White workers? Black workers? Everybody? Even non-workers? And, and that begins an enormous debate. But it's not only that. It's also screens are ugly for some people. so there is this beautiful hotel for example that they are building the tivoli hotel and they begin to discuss should we screen the tivoli hotel it's ugly to screen them yes but if an important person gets malaria we're going to have a bad reputation uh so better screen it and and but also and perhaps this is what you're getting at uh in the debate of what gets to be screened or not, you have health officers like Gorga saying we have to screen everybody. And then other people saying that's too expensive. We cannot. We're only going to screen white workers. And that uh, that is because it's impossible to screen everybody. If we screen black workers, then we have to screen the entire population of the canal zone before depopulation, that's a lot of people and we cannot do it no? and and that's when you, you begin to see the impossibility of, of having this perfect society that you're trying to create in a densely populated area
2: and that um, maybe leads towards the realization on the part of US officials that this effort to modernize these towns is not going to work I think that that's what you argue is that correct? Well, I mean, part, um, that's part of the story.
0: Yes, it's not, it's not going to work in the way they 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 envision it. First, because they're already both modern, so you cannot modernize what is already modern. Right. What they cannot do is make them an example. Perfect. No, perfection does not exist. Anywhere. It doesn't exist in New York of the early 20th century. It doesn't exist in Panama or the Panama Canal Zone. It doesn't exist. Uh, uh, industrial modernity is full of poverty, tenements. Um, and that was true everywhere. But that's not what Panama, the area about the, around the Panama Canal was supposed to be. You know, this was supposed to be an area that, that it was a showcase you know, of US modernity in the world. And that was impossible to do it with lots of people. And they realized that. I mean, that's part of what begins to happen. No, They, they, they cannot enforce every regulation, every dream they have of how a perfect city should be. As, the, as is impossible any, every, anywhere. No? Panama mm-hmm. is not special in that case.
2: So so then the process of moving begins and of sort of basically kicking people out of their homes and moving them to new places and um the description that you offer is is both chaotic and sad um and you refer to a few documents and so I wonder um if we can pause here and and um have you just talk a little bit about what kinds of sources you had to get at those experiences, the experiences of people moving and being forced out of their homes and, and experiencing that, that kind of sense of unsettlement and, and loss, right?
0: Yes. Well, once the decision is made to depopulate, and, 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 and that's a decision that has several steps, it's not immediate, and have even a Congress commission from Washington coming down to Panama and debate whether or not to depopulate the zone, then the process starts no and we're talking here lives around 14 percent of panama's population so it's, it's huge it's huge like everything related to the panama canal the depopulation is also a huge process although not one that was advertised like the size of the logs or the size um uh, of, of of the culebra cart or other things so the documents that I find, on the one hand, there are the documents of the, of the, the Ismian Canal Commission that just detail things like how many trains, how many people leave in one day, where are we taking them, how are the negotiations with the pa- Panama's government. But then the hardest part is to find how people felt or thought about it. And some things we'll never know but there were a few crucial uh, documents that I found of letters written to Panama's government on behalf of citizens and some letters written to to the East Canal Commission um, also complaining about the process. Uh, One, was an anonymous letter. Uh, It was very, very painful. And then there was this very rare uh, document that it was a song the one song that I found talking about this process too. You know, but it's really, it was it's really hard to find out sort of how people uh, felt, except for very few, few few documents. And there were some in Panama. The, the National national foreign relations archives in Panama also that describe. I you know from the perspective of local towns, they they continue to write to their government. This is not fair. This is not right. Um, we were Some people were already moved once. For example, the people that lived in the place where they got two lots were built. And they said, we were moved once. And we were told that this new settlement will be permanent. So we built our houses, or fields, or farms. And now you're telling us that we have to move again. Um, so there were those documents also in the letters to Panama's government, and they're hoping that their government can protect them or help them. Thing.
2: the experience it really makes you think about that experience and the the kind of craziness of the idea of just moving an entire town right um and we know that that has happened in other settings, but I was really um I was really sort of struck by the descriptions of some of the things and the ways that even the descriptions of the place allowed us to get a sense of that um i don't know di- dissonance right, so there was this one really fascinating description of the new town that opened and and there were all of these stores in the new town, right? Which were, which were just basically moved from the old town, but the old town had had lots of people going through and lots of people to, to be customers in the stores. But the new one was so isolated that there weren't people for the stores, but the stores were still existing because that's what people did. Right. And so (laughs) um, that's, um, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, please go ahead. No, I was just asking you. To, I just wanted to hear more about that.
0: Yes, this is this is one of the oldest towns. No, because in this area there were railroad towns and then there were colonial towns, and this is one of the colonial towns, Gorgona, um, that had been always there at the intersection between the Chagres River, which was what the waterway before the Panama Canal, and the mule path that connected the Chagres River. To Panama City, no, it was before the canal. It was a, a combination of river and mule tracks. That's how you cross Panama. So this was an important town that was an intersection of these two ways of transport. So this town in the middle, who had been at the middle of everything for centuries, all of a sudden is depopulated and sent far away from Panama City and from anything and any central part. And this town of storekeepers and store owners move with their stores. And there is a description that is, is almost like Garcia Marquez, Macondo-like, of store owners looking at each other in their stores full of goods with nobody to buy from them. And that's, to me, a heartbreaking story of displacement, of somebody being taken away from their context and their culture and put somewhere else and they don't know what to do in this new place that has nothing to do with who they are or what their culture is. Yes,
2: yeah, so those stories, each town has a particular story and you, you tell those really beautifully. So there's Chagres, there's Nulimon, there's Nugatun and each one of them, Chagres loses access to the river. Nulimon has to move twice. Nugatun takes over two years to move. And I'm, just now you mentioned sort of Garcia Marquez, and I was I was re- thinking as I was reading, what's the overriding? How would you, where do you land on the interpretation? Because there are so many possible ways to think about this. There's a kind of, um, there's a, a story about contingency. There's a story about tragedy. There's a story about absurdity. There's a story about powerless or exploitation. Where do you think you land, or, or, or do you want to in- incorporate all of those into the story?
0: I think they are all part of the story, but I, I think there is a special way in which the story is told, in which humor erases, uh, talking about the title of the book again, tragedy. No? Because there, mm-hmm. is, there are two tones of this story. There is a tone of the people being displaced that is always tragic. That's the tone of their letters, of their of their complaints, of how they represent what's happening to them. And then there is this the, the tone of the stories told about them in the Panama Canal Record, for example, which is a story of humor. In and in which you say, Oh, this poor first they don't say how big these towns are, and they begin to tell the story of these little towns in the middle of the jungle who need to give way to progress and how and they take these humorous stories about how these savage people don't understand the magnitude of what's going on, you no, know? which is absolutely not true. They understand perfectly well everything that's going on and the magnitude of it. But there is this humor, humor humorous way in which you transform these people in these sort of nature-like creatures that, that have to give way to progress. But you, but, in a tone that is humorous no and and that that difference in the two tones to me is very important for this story
2: so how do you how do you combine them, and where do you end up
0: well, I think I combine them in the sense that I think is the humor that erased the tragedy, no here um mm-hmm. and minimizes it too, no, because you uh, and, and that's. Not that I'm not that that's my specialty, but it's very, very clear in the documents, and it's, and I think it's a tragic story in many, many ways. And part of the thing, but why I think it's important to remember this story and to give it back its tragic tone is because um, if, if it was erased, not only the towns but also their protagonism. And I do think, and I I, I think I talk a lot about that in the book. Is that if you forget that you helped build something, then you have less rights in your own cultural uh, or collective ima- imagination to determine the future of that place.
2: Right. And
0: that's kind of what happened there.
2: So in the last chapter, we go, we go, we're going to come back to this myth um, that the flooding... Of Lake Gatun forced people out of their homes. And you start right away in the beginning of the chapter saying, this is the story, but it's wrong. And let me tell you the right story. So maybe you can share with us the, the correct interpretation of, of what happened.
0: Yes. I mean, I, I was—I still remember. I mean, I always thought that there was this beautiful novel with which I start uh, the story called Pueblos Perdidos, Lost Towns, that tell the story of this Gatun Lake covering towns and this tragic, but But at the same time, you think after the story, well, if you wanted a canal, this had to happen. And I still remember the first time looking at all maps when I realized that the towns were not flooded, that huge towns were not flooded, like Emperador or Nuevo Gatun or Chagres. I'm like, what is going on here? I, I could not believe it. I mean, that story was so entrenched that I could not believe what I was looking at. In the maps. And then well, it was finding well when there's a different explanation. If it was not flooding, why? What happened? And um, and that's when I realized that there are two different stories. One is the story of the building of the canal and the kind of technology you needed to build the canal, which is a fascinating story, but not really the story of my book. And then there is the other story of the area around the canal, the canal zone, and how this area was going to look like. And that's the story of the depopulation. Is the story of the canal zone, not of the Panama Canal, which we, you tend to conflate, but are two separate stories. And that's what I, what I realized. not that that's exactly what happened. It was the story of how are we going to govern and organize the towns around the canal, and that's really what what, what led to the depopulation, not anybody.
2: And from there, everything flows. And you point out that those towns um, were not actually flooded. The water came um, very close, but they, but they weren't.
0: Some were not even close. Uh, <laughs> Emperador, for example, is really far from the lake. Um, uh-huh. So is Nuevo Chagres. Is it's not on the lake. Gorgona, which is the emblematic flooded town. I thought it was in the middle of the lake. I mean, that's my, my and then I realized, no, it was, only half of it was flooded. Mm-hmm. Um, so they could have moved it a little bit if that had been the intention. But, but no, that, that was not what happened. The ones that were flooded, there were some that were flooded, actually, were the small, the small ones, but the big ones uh, they were not. And not even Gorgona, it was only half flooded.
2: So you open and you close the book with stories of your own experiences, which makes perfect sense, but also about the Panamanians that you interacted with. And I was really curious about how they're going to receive this complete rewriting of their history. Have they already um, received the book? Have you presented it there? What, what do you think your audience is going to um, make of, of this new, new way to understand the Canal Zone?
0: Well, um, it's, I already presented it in Panama and I, uh, and I made a point um, a month ago to not only present it in Panama City, but to go to one of the towns. And I went to Nuevo Chagres, chose Nuevo Chagres uh, because the local memory there is very, very strong. They remember your story. They have their own versions of the story. I spoke with them and I, tr- I tried to do my best to incorporate it into the book. And uh, of how they remember that. Um, so it was being a very, and also we invited them to Panama City. Not all the time, it was impossible, but to representative, you not know, to come, uh, to the presentation in Panama City. And I think this is a conversation that is just starting. I mean, that's my hope, no? That it becomes a place, the book, to remember for many other people to, to remember, uh, or bring back the stories they heard from the grandparents or great-grandparents. And that's really beginning to happen. I mean, I'm beginning to hear from people who tell me, oh, my grandmother was from Imperador, oh, my grandmother was from Cruces. And that's, oh, oh, that's beginning to happen. And the reaction in Panama City, um, it's, it's, so far has been positive, a, a reaction of surprise. And something kind of amazing is that, you know, we haven't talked about, is that the Panama Canal story has been told as a U.S. story told by specialists in u s history because it's not seen as part of Latin American history really no, and that has had an effect on how this story has been written and for panamanians um they have not there were no Panamanian book written by a Panamanian about the Panama canal construction from the perspective of Panama so one uh, uh, one interview I had was um so the person interviewing, this young man in a TV station, said, yes, I was hearing about the story of the Panama Canal in my classes. And I kept asking, not, uh, what about us? What about us? No, <laughs> and in some ways, this book is that answer. What about us? No this <laughs> kind of was not built just anywhere because the story is, you know is, is was built in Panama and there was a previous history and there were people there and they affected and were part of that story
2: yeah that's uh, that's a wonderful way to have a book um sort of appear in the world i think um so I've taken up lots of your time, but I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about a next project that you're working on—something equally fascinating, probably.
0: I don't know. I am playing with ideas. I'm a little bit um, scared of saying, but one thing that right now I am—I'm I'm with the idea—is doing a story of of um, how to call it heat, <laughs> or how we have lived in warm climates. And how we have dealt with humidity and heat over time no, with different technologies as they change over time all the way to air conditioner in a place like Panama, where there were so many technologies that have changed over time of how to deal with this, with temperature. And, um, And I'm very drawn by this story in part because I grew up in that moment of transition between houses that were not air conditioner, where... They, they were about cross ventilation and breeze to air conditioned houses with an enormous environmental uh, effect, you no know? um, enormous use of energy, uh, times when we know that's not the way um, and that they have enormous environmental costs. So I'm really curious, I would like to recover the history of before AC and how people used to live. Uh, from pre-Columbian times to colonial times to U.S. uh, technologies of early 20th century to 1950s uh, urban architects who were dealing with heat and breeze to the present.
2: That does sound fascinating. And I think that given given the current climate issues, we will probably be using some of those techniques again. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Thank you, Alejandra. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about this.